It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Earlier this week, America's Justice Department filed a striking indictment of Huawei, a Chinese technology firm suspected of being chummy with the communist government. That's going to make the bilateral trade talks that start today even more tense than the last round. And it's getting easier to get good quality Indian food in the truck stops of America. There's a demographic shift going on in trucking, and with it comes a whole new genre of music. But first... Venezuela without Maduro would be a much better place. Brooke Unger is America's editor at The Economist. He's governed the country for the past six years. They've been six disastrous years, both in terms of what's happened to the economy, which has shrunk by something like 50 percent since he took over, and also in terms of, you know, the political and humanitarian situation. People are hungry. People are fleeing. He's steadily arrogated more and more power to himself to the point where Venezuela can now only really be described as a dictatorship. But President Nicolas Maduro suddenly faces a resurgent opposition that the international community is all too ready to back. New oil sanctions are coming into force, and as protests have boiled over, Mr. Maduro has hinted at negotiations with the opposition leader. All of a sudden, the opposition in Venezuela has kind of got its mojo back. The National Assembly, which is legitimately elected, named as its president a man named Juan Guaido, who proclaimed himself the country's interim president on the grounds that Maduro is no longer the legitimate president. And what this has done is it's kind of galvanized the opposition to Maduro, which had been really kind of defeated and demoralized and divided up until that point. And... As important, countries such as the United States and Canada and most of the major economies in South America have agreed to recognize Mr. Guaido as the country's interim president. So now you have a focus of legitimacy and power in opposition to Mr. Maduro that you didn't have before. And then on Monday, the U.S. imposed its tightest sanctions yet on Venezuela, uh, basically cutting off U.S. imports of Venezuelan oil, which is their main source of income. Why, though, would you say Mr. Guaido is viewed as legitimate? Why can he do what he's done? Well, under the country's constitution, if the presidency is vacant and Mr. Guaido and the Democrats would argue that it is vacant because Maduro won a fraudulent election last May, then the interim presidency falls to the president of the National Assembly. And that's Mr. Guaido, who then has the responsibility to call elections within 30 days. And what do you say about the the murmurings that this is sort of a, a coup orchestrated from outside? In order to argue that this was a coup, you have to argue that Maduro is a legitimate president of, of Venezuela, and clearly he isn't. The opposition has done nothing violent. There's no attempt to seize power by force. This is not a coup. And just today, Mr. Maduro has said he is actually ready to, to have talks with Mr. Guaido, reportedly. 
Right. Well, I don't, I don't place a lot of faith in that. I mean, the government and the opposition have had talks before on those past occasions. It's been basically a way for the government to kind of wrong foot the opposition and, and divide the opposition. They haven't really led to anything. Uh, you know, Maduro is saying he's not going to have fresh elections. He'll have parliamentary elections. And of course, parliament is now controlled by the opposition. So that's kind of inviting parliament to put itself up for election and, and then Maduro to rig those elections in his favor. So I, I don't take that offer terribly seriously. The Supreme Court in Venezuela Venezuela also imposes travel ban on Mr. Guaido. It's not surprising that they would do that. I, I think one of the, the interesting aspects of all of this is that you know the government has been very repressive against the opposition, but you know so far Guaido remains a free man, and the National Assembly remains in business, even though it doesn't have any formal power. Okay, and I guess what happens next is largely driven by the military and and whether they continue to stand by him. Do you have a sense of whether its loyalties might be changing? There's no real sign yet that the military is defecting en masse. All the top generals came out a couple of days ago and pledged their loyalty to the regime. You've had some isolated instances of rebellion within various units of, of the armed forces, the National Guard, but you know those haven't really amounted to anything and they've been easily put down. So there's no real sign yet of a well-coordinated defection by the military to the opposition. If that happens, you know, you, you will see a change in the situation. You mentioned the, the oil sanctions that the U.S. imposed on, on Monday. What, is, what does that really mean? How, how important is that in the, in the calculus here? And I, another important point, does that just ring down immediately to the people? Does that not just make things worse for the Venezuelan people? Well, they're pretty, uh, they're pretty significant. Um, you know, Venezuela depends almost entirely on oil for its export income. Um, the United States is its biggest customer. So basically the U.S. is saying, well, you know, you can buy Venezuelan oil, but you're going to have to pay that over into accounts reserved for the opposition rather than for the government. Um, so it doesn't make sense now under those circumstances for Venezuela to continue selling oil to the U.S. It's going to have to find other customers. It'll probably have to take a discount on on those other sales. It's, you know, a, a, a regime in a country that was already suffering terribly economically is going to suffer even more as a result of these sanctions. Um, um, you know, the hope is in the U.S. and 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 the opposition has 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 backed these sanctions. The, the hope is that this will be kind of the final nudge that topples the regime. Um, you know, the danger is that it won't do that, and that you know, instead of that happening, what you'll see is is even more you know misery um, in in Venezuela, even more um, refugees leaving Venezuela than you have now. So it's a it's a very high stakes move. Beyond sanctions, whether they be the best way to go about this or not, what options remain on the table? Well, the United States has not taken military intervention off the table. That would be a very, very drastic step. I mean, first of all, it's very difficult to see what form military intervention by the United States would take. Um, the mood on the streets in Caracas, I've heard, is, you know, let the Gregos come, you know, anything to get out of this situation. But I, I, you know, despite that mood, and I understand that mood, despite that mood, I think it would be a very, very dangerous thing to do. Second of all, because it's very important that Venezuelans and, you know, the region as a whole and and the world at large see this transition as being one that is led by Venezuelans and for the sake of Venezuelans. If it looks like an act of American imperialism, then you know it will lose a lot of credibility that the opposition now has. So while America and indeed others are, are putting pressure um, on, on the country, does the Maduro regime have any allies? 
Well, Venezuela does have some allies, notably Russia and China, which have supported this government with loans, with investments. You know, now that the threats to Maduro appear to be mounting, the Russians in particular seem to be stepping up their support, particularly political support. They've defended Maduro before the Security Council. There are rumors, there are reports that Russian private security group has gone into Venezuela to protect Maduro. Um, It's unclear just how much additional financial support will be available to the regime. So, while on the one hand, you know, the screws are being tightened by the democratic countries, they're being sort of loosened by uh, some of the less democratic ones. And it's hard to know who's going to win. I mean, with Russia backing its man, the United States backing somebody else, it's not a proxy war, but there's certainly a proxy conflict going on. And that is worrying. So this has global significance as well as regional significance. Thanks very much, Brooke. My pleasure. Until democracy is restored in Venezuela, everyday life will continue as normal in this most volatile of economies. The statistics beggar belief. 10 million percent, this year's predicted hyperinflation. 90 percent, the proportion of Venezuelans living below the poverty line. 11 kilograms, the average amount of weight reportedly lost by Venezuelans in 2017 because of poverty and food shortages. And yet, somehow, people go to work, they get groceries, They feed their families what they can. How do they manage? Stephen Gibbs, who reports for The Economist from Venezuela's capital city, Caracas, spoke to some of its residents to find out. It's sort of inexplicable how people even bother going to check in to be a doctor when a doctor is earning, you know, perhaps $10 a month. And, you know, one reason for that is people like going to work, even if they're earning almost nothing. For a sort of sense of pride and a sense of identity, people do what they always did. Not only are people earning almost nothing, they're also wasting hours and hours of their day queuing for something that just a few years ago they pop into the supermarket and buy. Wherever you go in Caracas, you see queues. Usually it's because one of the supermarkets here is selling something at government-regulated prices, which are still just about affordable to most people. Just the other day I was in Caracas in Los Palos Grandes, which formerly was a sort of more wealthy uh, part of the city. I went there with my producer, Andrea, and we talked to a few people who were queuing for arena pan, which is the corn flour that Venezuelans use to make their absolutely staple bread called the arepa. And we spoke to Yanubi Polanco. Now, she is in her mid-50s. She's a freelance accountant. Her story, very typical of, of many stories of middle-class people in Venezuela. She works several jobs. So, you know, previously she'd be working nine to five. Now she's working sort of eight till ten. She was very clear about just what a waste of time all of this is. So you describe this as a formerly wealthy neighborhood and how this strikes middle-class people. Normally, it's, it's the poor people who get the, the even shorter end of the stick, but this sounds as if it's kind of the, the, the pain is evenly spread. Yeah, I don't think it's completely evenly spread. I think that the poorest are being hit the hardest. It's a sort of haves and have not society, and it's really if you have access to the dollar or if you don't. In Venezuela, as hyperinflation has spiraled and the local currency, the Bolivar, has become nearly worthless, the importance of the U.S. dollar has soared. 
Those who remain in the country have become increasingly dependent on dollar savings, or on money sent back by family and friends who are among the two and a half million people who have fled the country since 2014. But what's another way to get dollar rich in Venezuela? Get some good government connections. The other big group of people who have access to dollars are those close to the government. They are often described as enchufados. It's a sort of a Venezuelan slang for plugged in. Anyone who is plugged in to this huge corruption scam that the government is involved in, where there are several exchange rates here, the most generous exchange rate from the Bolivar to the dollar is only available to those connected with the government. And that means you can use your near worthless Bolivars to buy valuable dollars. And those that can do that are those connected to the government. And where do those people spend their money? Well, there are these dollar shops, which sort of technically are prohibited, but there's a, there's a bit of a grey area going on. Now, within Caracas, there are four or five of these, and you go in, and it's like going into a mini Costco. Everything that you think is not available in Venezuela, from nappies to brand-name detergent to expensive whiskey, etc., it's all there. Whoever owns these stores, they are clearly enchufados themselves. We went to one called the Cine Dollar Store, I spoke there to Natalie. She'd actually come to that store from her own store. She, she's a, a sort of mini supermarket owner in a place called Lecheria. She buys things like Nutella, Nutella sneakers, everything is chocolate. Um, so you come here to this uh, dollar shop yeah. to buy stuff and then you resell it yeah. at your own little market? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. okay. What, what is your profit? In paper, there $10, I send and 20 and double. Okay, so you've got a double markup. Yeah. But who can afford uh, to pay your prices, which are going to be twice as much as this market yeah. Yeah. where you live? Who can who can afford that? Okay, in Lecheria, uh, many people is enchufada. <laughs> <laughs> the other place I went to uh, was we went to Patari, one of the biggest slums in the whole of Latin America. Almost everyone we spoke to just sort of desperately trying to understand how they would be able to survive this month on the minimum salary. And, for example, Berta Meta, a, a pensioner, 59. She survives by government handouts. There's a government food handout system called the CLAP system that most people say is enough to survive on for perhaps 10 days. Others sell some of the things that they might receive in that government food pack and buy something else that they want. So it sounds like a lot of people are just managing to, to scratch out a living. Is there any room for occasional luxuries, anything beyond just surviving? Oh, I mean, without question, people are still trying to, you know, find a little happiness in their lives. I mean, for example, the baseball league is still happening here. A few months back, I went to the opening of the Winter League. You know, this isn't like it once was. The stadium was perhaps only a third full. A couple of beers there may cost, you know, more than a day's minimum salary. But there were plenty of people there that say, look, I'm a big fanatic of baseball. Ustedes in Venezuela son super fanáticos de baseball. Claro, claro, super fanático del béisbol. You know, despite everything, I want to have some fun. You know, let's let's live a little. One of the most noticeable things about Venezuela is that 10% of the population has left, but the majority of people are still here. They're 
eking out a life as best they can. And I'd say if one can generalise, almost everyone is hoping for change. Now, that change is looking a little bit more imminent in the last few days. There are plenty of people who are worried about that. But the majority think almost anything is going to be better than this. Stephen, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Today, America begins delicate trade talks with China in Washington. Shockwaves are still reverberating from a slew of charges brought by America's Justice Department against Huawei, a Chinese telecoms firm. As the indictment charges, the alleged fraudulent financial schemes used by Huawei and its chief financial officer were not just illegal, but detrimental to the security of the United States. On Monday, the Homeland Security Secretary, Kirsten Nielsen, announced charges the company had stolen technological trade secrets from American companies and that it had not been truthful about its business in Iran. They willfully conducted millions of dollars in transactions that were in direct violation of the Iranian transactions and sanctions regulations. And we will not as a country tolerate efforts to circumvent U.S. sanctions to support an odious regime that sponsors terror and threatens the United States and our allies. The company vehemently denies the charges. And the indictment comes after America requested the arrest of Meng Wanzhou, the company's chief financial officer in Canada last year. Ms. Meng is the daughter of the company's founder. Right after she was arrested, China detained two Canadians in what looked a lot like a retaliation. The U.S. has also repeatedly raised concerns that Huawei's technology, widely deployed all over the world, could also be used for spying. To American officials, the line between one Chinese company and the whole Chinese state is looking a little blurred. And America has been asserting that view to its allies, some of whom have reservations of their own about the company. Well, a good number of American allies have been feeling the heat recently from the UK, whose carriers have long bought Huawei telecoms equipment under a a special arrangement to check their tech in a purpose-built lab in the UK, to Australia, which banned Huawei from supplying 5G equipment uh, last year, and New Zealand. Stephanie Studer is the senior China business correspondent for The Economist. These countries are all part of what's known as the Five Eyes, an intelligence-sharing alliance. And so, as American fears mount about whether China could be using Huawei gear to snoop, naturally it wants to make sure that this network isn't being compromised. So it seems there is an increasingly concerted effort to contain Huawei's global growth led by America. It's worth noting, though, that so far none of these spy chiefs have presented publicly evidence of Huawei's rumoured ties to the Chinese army, nor to the government. Huawei continues to deny all this. Stephanie, how much of an impact will this indictment have on Huawei as a company? The charges certainly are a blow. The pair of indictments don't show that American prosecutors have direct evidence of spying uh, or of government ties. 
But other allegations were pretty explosive, in particular one that alleges Huawei had a bonus plan that rewarded employees who stole trade secrets from competitors. The bigger the secret, the bigger the bonus. Uh, That, the FBI says, it found out from internal emails sent in 2013. And the second big charge is sanctions evasion. Uh, And a few weeks ago, a bipartisan bill was introduced in Congress to ban the sale of American technology to any company which violates sanctions. Uh, this, This bill clearly has Chinese companies in mind. If that passes and Huawei is found guilty the company could be crippled by the ban, and it very much needs that access to US components. It's not just the company that has been stung by the latest charges. Officials have been vocal too. I'm joined by our Beijing bureau chief, David Rennie, to talk through how things look from there. David, what's what's the response been in China? Um, From the very top of the Chinese government, uh, including formal statements from the Chinese foreign ministry, uh, they're very angry, and uh, they present it absolutely as the United States using its what they call national power to try to strangle China's lawful and legitimate desire uh, to be a technology force around the world. Okay, it seems clear that the U.S. suspects the company of being very close to the state, um, and it seems that the state in turn, you know, denies that link and, and backs the company completely. Do you have a sense of how close the two really are behind the scenes? Um It's a bit of a double story, isn't it? So Huawei, the company, uh, including its president, uh, Ren Zhangfei, gave an interview recently to the international press saying that it's just another company uh, serving its customers uh, and that if the Chinese government ever asked Huawei to give improper information about its foreign customers, they would, of course, say no. But then on the other hand, you have the Chinese government at the highest levels uh, going kind of berserk in defense of Huawei, to use the technical term, and really interesting language around uh, uh, Meng Wanzhou, who is the daughter of the head of and um, founder of Huawei, some of the language that the foreign ministry uses makes it clear that they see this as an entirely political test of strength. Well, I mean, th- that raises the question then whether this is simply a, a bit of, of bluster and posturing or whether there is an actual, you know, if, if there's a reason to believe there's an actual strategic link there. I mean, do you get the sense that there's any debate within the political elite in, in terms of how much the state should support the company? No, I think, look, this is, this is not bluster at all on either side. It's deadly serious on both sides. Uh, one of the things about this is that when the Americans say that uh, a Chinese company as large and powerful as Huawei involved in the highest technology uh, cannot be separated from the Communist Party, uh, the Americans are right. But when the Chinese say that the American government under Donald Trump is also using uh, every aspect of American state power, whether it's uh, you know, uh, encouraging prosecutors to go after Huawei, encouraging intelligence agencies to go after Huawei, or using American diplomats to twist the arms of allies uh, because, in part, America wants to ward off a national security threat but also just does not want a giant commercial rival – the Chinese are also right. This is a game in which both sides are playing for very high stakes. And it, and it blurs all of the lines between what is espionage, what is industrial policy, and what is a straightforward commercial fight for the commanding heights of high technology in the 21st century. But talking specifically about the the sort of intellectual property theft angle of this, my my understanding, you know, that has certainly been known among Chinese companies for a long time, but has been tapering off as China has kind of come into its own as a as a technological power. Do you think this story tells us anything about Chinese companies' approach to to intellectual property and, and trade secrets now? It's another piece of evidence that optimists who were saying China would soon sort of converge with the West 
are probably being disappointed. So the story for a long time among high-tech businesses was, yes, in the past, China stole a lot of American technology, just like, you know, if you go back far enough, the Japanese did in their day, and every rising power sort of steals from the top dog status quo powers. But the idea was that China would start developing its own high-tech uh, intellectual property so fast that it would sort of go from being a poacher and become a gamekeeper, that it would be one of the countries that wanted generally to protect high-tech. Some of the evidence uh, in this indictment handed down by the Americans points to Huawei still being actively engaged in stealing stuff. I think that the mood among Western businesses here in China is that China is still not behaving as they had hoped it would be by now. It is still uh, more of a kind of scrappy, uh, get-there-by-any-means kind of player than the kind of responsible stakeholder that some people hoped to see uh, by 2019. David, thanks very much for your time. Thank you. America loves to celebrate haulage. I'm proud to say I drive a truck. The truck driver has long been immortalized in songs, like this one by Dave Dudley. I'm looking through my windshield. As a kid, I dreamt of driving an 18-wheeler. Who doesn't want to get paid to see the country? I moved on, eventually, to other aspirations. But America still revels in the joy of trucking. And increasingly, it's taken kind of a new form. This song, Truck Union by Surjit Singh, is a hymn to the success of truck drivers who are members of the Sikh faith. Wherever Sikhs go, he exults, they never look back. They achieve success through dedication, hard work, good ethics. And it's not just songs. All along the West Coast now, there are truck stops run by people of Indian origin, selling butter chicken, Kashmiri lamb, and lentil curries. Sometimes there are spaces for Sikhs to worship. We usually do from like LA to Washington. Kurjinder Singh is one of many drivers at this stop who is Sikh and who comes from the Punjab region in northern India. He started off working at a truck stop and now has his own company. I have eight trucks. Trucking was familiar work for a lot of men back home. I think it's the background because a lot of people back in back home they mm. were driving mm. and so they're already used to it, you know. Uh, there are estimated about 150,000 Sikhs in trucking in America. Gurinder Singh Khalsa is the head of Sikhs Pack, a Sikh political group. It all happened. It has a very, it's related uh, back to the 80s. A lot of Sikh youth moved to U.S. There had been a spasm of violence against Sikhs in India. The Sikh youth that came to U.S., they, most of them very close, you know, the faith, especially the beard and turban. And they were getting hard time getting entry-level jobs where they could uh, at the same time get a job and practice their religion, having beard and turban. So they looked elsewhere. And that was easy for them to become truck drivers. And that's how they got into it. Because that was the industry where they were not required to take off their turban and beard. Mr. Singh says most every Sikh family he knows has at least one person working in the industry. The trucking magazine, Overdrive, this year put a Sikh on the cover for the first time. 
it reported that the older trucking community is now more integrated with the Sikh subculture after Sikhs joined in protests against an unpopular new rule about electronic logbooks. And even as they're making the trucking culture their own, revamping songs and food for a more diverse generation, trucking has also made its way into Sikh culture. Mr. Singh says no wedding is now complete without a trucking song. Listen to this one, Pukka Truckin' Wali by Nishan Bular. In it, a man is singing to his new wife that with his job in trucking, he'll be able to buy her a beautiful house and a car. An American dream, if ever there was one. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. You can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here tomorrow. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.